That was the opening to Prism, a Matthew Shipp album with William Parker on bass and Whit Dickey on drums. Welcome to the second episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast, which is now available on iTunes and on Stitcher. So however you're listening, I'm glad to know you're out there, and please feel free to subscribe, to email your comments to burningambulance at gmail.com, or whatever you want to do. This time out, I'm interviewing Matt Shipp. I've been a fan of his for over 20 years, and a friend of his for almost that long. Prism was the first record of his I ever heard. It uh, came out in 1996, and I don't remember where I read his name, but something put him on my radar. And one day I was in a record store my friend ran, and he had this album, the original version, on Brinkman. It has uh, subsequently been reissued by Hat Hut out of Switzerland, but at the time it was on this tiny Dutch label. And as far as I know, it was the only jazz record they ever put out. Most of the other stuff they released was indie rock. They did a bunch of Betty Servered records, they put out Oxbow's Let Me Be a Woman, and then there was this one Matthew Ship record. Anyway, I bought it, I listened to it, and I was blown away by it. I hadn't heard any really heavy-duty avant-garde jazz piano stuff yet at that point, and this was an album with just two tracks, each of which was about a half hour long and totally intense. I mean, he was just hammering on the keyboard with so much force that it was pretty much breathtaking. So soon after that, I found out that he was also the piano player for the David S. Ware Quartet, that in fact the band on Prism was the Ware Quartet at the time, minus Ware. And so I started listening to all of their albums as well. And I first uh, I first met Matt at the Vision Festival in New York in 1998, where the Ware Quartet was playing. And again, this was a long time ago, so I don't even remember how I heard that there was such a thing as the Vision Festival. I probably read about it in the Village Voice, but anyway, I uh, went down to the Oren Sands Arts Center on Rivington Street, and I met a whole bunch of people that I'm still friends with today. Stephen Jorg from On Fidelity Records, William Parker, his wife Patricia, Steve Dalachinsky, and Matt. Matt has been one of avant-garde jazz's most compelling figures since the early 1990s, and a big part of that is due to his intense productivity. He frequently releases multiple albums in a year. Sometimes they're solo performances, sometimes they're by his current trio. In 2017 alone, he's put out a trio album with Michael Bizio on bass and Newman Taylor Baker on drums called Piano Song. He's put out a solo album called Invisible Touch at Tactlos Zurich. Uh, he's done Vessel in Orbit, which is a collaboration with Whit Dickey on drums and Matt Maneri on violin. Uh, this is Beautiful Because We Are Beautiful People, which is with saxophonist Matt Walerian and William Parker on bass. Magnetisms, which is a reissue of a 1999 disc with Parker and Rob Brown on saxophone, but it's been paired with a brand new live performance by the same group. And he's put out 11 albums in collaboration with saxophonist Evo Perlman and various other people. Sometimes Parker, sometimes drummers, sometimes duo albums. Anyway, over the last 19 years or so, I've interviewed Matt several times for my book New York Is Now, which came out in 2001, for The Village Voice, for The Wire, for the first print issue of Burning Ambulance back in 2010, and probably a few other places too. But still, when I got him on the phone to talk this time, there were things that he and I had never discussed about his past, his present activities, and to some degree his future. So in this interview, 
We talk about his earliest days and how he decided to become a professional musician, his current activities, including his creative relationship with Perlman and his decision to leave the Thirsty Ear label after nearly 20 years in partnership with them, and his uh, outspoken opposition to Donald Trump. So I'm going to play a little bit more music. This next piece is a version of Monk's Nightmare, which was originally on his album Circular Temple from 1993. But this version comes from the new album Invisible Touch at Tactos Zurich, which is also on the Hat Hut label. And right after that, we'll get into the interview. were you when you started playing piano? Um, I was five years old. And was it your idea, your parents' idea? What was what was the deal? It, it, it was my idea. It was based on hearing a church organist at my parents' church that it really moved me. And I decided I wanted to do that. And were they immediately supportive? Like, you know? Yeah, yeah, they were cool. I mean, you know, if a kid wanted to do something, why not? <laughs> Did you grow up in like an artistically, you know, supportive or a creative kind of a household, or what was the deal? Um, yeah, I would say that my parents had a very um, open mind towards music, and in fact, you know, when they were younger, in the like say the fifties, when they they got married in nineteen fifty, so they were I, I wouldn't say hipsters, but you know they they were buying records, the type of records that maybe people that um say read Esquire magazine you know bought and uh, I, I would you know I would also not that they didn't subscribe to Playboy but that that whole kind of like paradigm that existed in the late 50s and 60s of like readers of Esquire say Playboy and whatever and that whole hipster sense they they would have not that they embodied that lifestyle at all but as far as like the music part of it they were checking out stuff you know whether it was miles davis or or whatever mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so at what point did you decide that you were actually going to be a musician like that was going to be your career or your life or whatever um uh, you know i i don't 
really remember exactly like but it just kind of took more you know at first i was into it but it was just a side thing and then slowly but surely i got more and more into it um i'm not exactly sure the point where i said like i i went because at first it would have been to be a class concert pianist i don't remember the exact point was like this is what i'm going to do but it would have been somewhere around 11 or 12 and at the same time you know that's not it's very close to when i got really hooked into jazz also but i don't remember if there was a bifurcation in my mind as far as like i'm going to be a classical pianist or a jazz pianist but i know i got really really serious around 12 like i mean you know ultra serious and again like the the parental angle i'm curious about because you know parents support their kids decisions but at the same time there's a lot of risk in becoming right. a musician like there's not you know if, if your kid says oh i'm going to law school a part of you inside goes yay you know but if your kid says i'm going to become a jazz piano player part of you inside goes fuck yeah well i'm, I'm sure there's a big part. i mean i know but there's a big part that you know i mean of course they're going to be supportive of your decisions and you know if they see you're working hard at something and or have talent at it you know good parents are not going to get in the way but i don't think any parent is sitting around wanting their kids to go into music as a career and let alone jazz or let alone avant-garde jazz so <laughs> um, I, I mean I, you know i could <laughs> there's always the um pressure from them to like have a second choice you know do you know keep doing what you're doing but you know get a backup plan in case and my I don't remember if that was ever exactly said in an overt fashion even though I know that was implied but my my situation was always like no because I'm I just have that much belief in what I myself and and um I you know, I do remember like having a talk with my father. This is when I was a little older, and you know, I was really clear about the way I wanted to go. Like, because my parents actually had met Pavonius Monk. Wow. Um, when he got arrested in my home state of Delaware, because it, the lawyer Monk had was a family friend um, that he got assigned in Delaware, so they actually had a chance to meet him, and the, you know, they were had a few Monk albums and knew a little about him, and they knew the whole kind of like the story so like you know it was easy to present like the concept that I wanted to do saying that I wanted to be a composer and do my own music in the same way like the monk did you know where you have your own thing and you do it and you know so it was kind of easy to get that concept across because they knew some of the historical example right of that type of type of approach and um I just remember my father's response was, son, you know, Mozart is one of the greatest geniuses ever, and he died of starvation, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know. But the other thing with, with in my situation is I was pretty, um, um, what's the word, industrious, and I was making money as a musician from pretty early on, whether it was being an assistant church organist or I had like a trio at one point where we kind of did like Bill Evans type of thing and you know um, I played cocktail piano and I and I was always kind of, you know making some money somehow in music 
you know, doing little things like that, even as a teenager. So that they saw that I, I had a work ethic and a, some sort of business sense about it. So, and I, you know, I, I think that, that, that helped ease their pain. I mean, there was definitely pain about the decision, you know, <laughs> from their standpoint, but that eased it a little bit, seeing that I, you know, at least I had a consciousness of, of going about it, trying to make some money. Right, right. That was I was actually curious about that when you first moved to New York, how you kind of made it, you know, because I didn't know were you working like the typical shitty piano player jobs, like backing um, singers no, or whatever. By the time I moved to New York, I was really focused um, in what I wanted to do, you know. And I, I by, that, by that point, I wasn't um, doing any, you know. I, I had done all kinds of things. I had played for plays and choirs and stuff before I moved to New York, but. Once I moved to New York in '84, I, I was completely focused in my thing. I think by the t- in '80 around '84, '85, I might have done two gigs that were not um, related to my world, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I just stopped it altogether. So by the time I moved to New York, I was not working outside of m- m- exactly the area I wanted to work at anymore, and. Okay. Um, as far as making money, I wasn't, you know, until I started making a living as a musician, which I would say would have started in 89, the first six or seven, you know, first um, seven, six, seven years I was in New York, I was doing other jobs, you know, outside of music. Yeah, that was, that was another question I had, was like, when was the last time you had a non-music type of a job? 89. Yeah. <laughs> when I got fired from a couple of years I worked at um, Barnes & Noble, it was before it was a chain. Oh, okay. Okay. It was just one store, but um, I was um, I worked there for a couple of years, and my, the guy that brought me in, who I was an assistant manager, got a promotion, so I was, had another, manager after he left, and um, I did not get along with her. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let me let me jump forward to more or less the present day. Um, what led up to your decision to stop recording for Thirsty Ear? Because you'd been with them almost twenty years, it seems like. So, what right. brought that around? Um, that thing that what you just said there, you know, I mean, probably kind of close to a time for a new approach to putting stuff out for me. A B, um, you know, I think Thirsty Ear is going to probably be changing somewhat because. Peter Gordon, who runs Thirsty Years, kind of really involved with the Jazz Connect, you know, the big conference every year and stuff, and he, he's gone more in a um, kind of, not institutional area, but more of an overall jazz management type of thing as far as, um, not management as far as managing artists, but, as, you know, as far as being involved in trying to figure out how to make jazz more part of American culture so um, mm-hmm. so I mean he's not really as concentrated on the label as, as he was at one time and um, I've done so much there that I really kind of feel the need of a kind of a ref- push the refresh button a little bit you know yeah 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 it seemed like in the last five years or so they really were putting out almost nothing but your records like there would be yeah, one record got from, you know from you and then one record from me and one record from somebody else every year yeah and that's not really a way to run a label you know right <laughs> I, mean, I mean last year they put out Tamika Reed you know which, and then a few years ago it was um, Dawn of Midi and right. both of those records actually made some beautiful noise you know they did they did some nice stuff mm-hmm. um, so 
So now you're kind of bouncing all over the place. You've, you're on ESP, you're doing stuff with Hat, you've done, uh, you just had a record come out on some Polish label I can't remember the name of. Right. So do these people... Um, the, 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 the Fortune Records is the name of the label that the record is. I'm not down. It's Daniel Carter. Yeah, yeah. Me, Bissio, and um, with Dickie's actually on that one. So do these labels, they come to you and say, we want to record one of your shows, or we want to put you in the studio, or do you have like a manager that works that stuff out? How does it... I have no management, per se. I have a, a, a partial European agent, but no management. No, um, with ESP, the guy that runs the label is a longtime friend of mine. And, you know, that, that was... I kind of got open. I have open carte blanche if I want to do something there, so... Um, the Polish label, and William Parker had done an album on that label years ago, and um, I don't even remember how I started talking to the guy, but I did, and um, you know, I'm still doing a bunch of stuff on Rogart, mm-hmm. but that, but he's like a really close friend of mine, and um, the guy that runs that label, and that label, I was actually the first release on that label ever, you know, I'm, I kind of have open season on that label too, so. There's no shortage of places to do things if I want to do something. You know, that's not the point. Um, the point is um, I am still trying to wind down, you know, even though it might not seem like that's happening. <laughs> but yeah. I'm trying. <laughs> and the, the Hat Live record, the solo one that just came out, what was the story behind that? Did they just kind of say? Well, hey, that was, um, I, you know, that was that concert was in Switzerland. And, um, um Howard's a Swiss label, so Werner, you know, who I obviously, if anybody that knows my history, I have a long history of recording with Howard. He just, he he's friends with the people that run the fe- that festival where I played at, and he just contacted me. Was, I would love to put it out. So that was that. And also, I, he's going to be reissuing Symbol Systems. Oh, okay. okay. My first soul. He's buying the rights, to, in the process of buying the rights to that, and he's going to be reissuing that. Cool, cool. So, um, yeah, I'm doing a few things with Hat Art now too. Yes. Yeah. Now you you've been working a lot with Evo Perlman over the last right. few years, including now you're doing some quartet recordings, which I thought you had kind of sworn off of after working with David Ware. So, tell me a little bit about your creative relationship with Evo and how you guys fit together, what he's like as a collaborator, stuff like that. Um, well, I'm feeling, really feeling what he's doing heavily now. I mean, he's a really committed musician. He's committed to, like, the relationship. If he has a relationship with playing somebody, he really commits to trying to find out what that person's about and really not just doing his thing over you. I mean, he he commits to, like, trying to really develop something together, and it's kind of a really beautiful process. And, um, you know, we're close friends also, and... Um, He's a nut, you know. I like nuts. <laughs> I mean, obviously, the way he goes about his, you know, recording career is nutty. But um, but it's it's a different approach. And in a, a situation now where there's no jazz marketplace mm-hmm. to speak of anyway, why not? You know, I mean, you know, it can't hurt him doing putting out the amount of stuff he does because you know it doesn't it, almost nothing matters now. So. <laughs> you might as well have an extreme approach like that, and, and it actually is getting him somewhere. I mean, people are noticing, you know. 
Yeah, I feel like his profile has grown a lot over the past, you know, and now that he's taken this like six albums, seven albums at a time kind of approach, I feel like it is actually working for him. And Yeah, it is. And it is. I mean, Leo Records has given him carte blanche, and it, they just said keep bringing it on because now they have people buying, like when he puts out one set of records, they have, you know, orders for everything in that set. It's gotten to be kind of a thing. I mean, of course, he's not, you know, breaking the bank to Mossy Washington stuff or anything but but you know within its realm it, it, it's working it's caught a little buzz and you know people yeah. think he's a nut but they're kind of into it you know? yeah and he's starting to perform live more right I mean he wasn't really much of a live guy as far as I know right so. yeah I've done one tour of Europe with him and we have another tour next year and um so yeah yeah I, I really really value that relationship with him and playing with him and I, he's very committed very committed person um you've also made three albums with matt Wallerian. how did how did that relationship start and what's the deal there did he like well he you approached out? me he approached me and i didn't know who he was and i was kind of skeptical like and i i he, but he had um done some stuff with Hami drake in the past so he had I just asked so he when he approached me he said you know I've worked with Hamid if you want to um, uh, you know ask him if you, if you don't you know because you don't know me or anything and uh, I was like oh god I'm skeptical about it and I, I kind of had some gigs coming up in Poland around that area so it would have been you know he wanted to do some stuff and I could yeah, so I was thinking that you know if, if I do go for it it, 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 it makes sense with my schedule at the time so um, I contact you know I asked Hamid and Hamid was actually like yeah you should really work with him I think you guys were really hit it off and I was I, you know I was expecting to say yeah you know he's a good musician but you know so uh, it's just like you know but he was actually really like yeah I think you guys were really hit it off I worked with him and he's a serious artist so I you know based on Hamid's um, recommendation in that way I contacted him and we did a concert together and you know I was actually kind of taken that he had a, a real concept and um, really was focused on it and he was a serious artist you know and um, so it just started from there and it's grown and we you know to the point where you know we're actually like talk every day you know I mean, <laughs> somehow, whether it's email or whatever I mean you know he's actually like a really close friend now mm-hmm. even though you know he's younger and kind of in some way I'm you know I don't want to say a father figure but I'm you know he's I'm an elder figure to him but you know we're really really close yeah and yeah. It, and it's been a very fruitful and it also he goes about things in a completely different way than I would so even though I'm kind of the elder figure here it, it, it's kind of a refresh button for me also because it's giving me a window into kind of you know kind of little different ways of dealing with stuff in what, it's, in it's what sense different. like business or well music his approach or? to music is just different than mine I mean I'm not really centered I mean you know his his a very zen approach to things and that 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 thing that operates within my world too but in a different way and it's just a whole attack and and I think my playing on his albums is a lot different than my playing on other albums or my own albums Especially the first album I did with him, the duo album. Mm-hmm. I think my, my playing on that is kind of completely different than how I play 
Yeah. You, that and that's true with with Evo as well too, because I mean he's he doesn't compose. He's just you know go in, right. like, press record and go. You know. Right. And you're you know you you write tunes, so you know it's where do you guys sometimes meet, some, right. yeah. But I mean, where do you guys like meet in the middle there? Like, you know? well, I'm 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 trying to write less and less tunes. Let's put it that way. Um, I, I mean, the, the way I play with Evo, I've all been doing duos with sax players for years, and they have tended to be, com- you know, improv- completely improvisational. Like the stuff I did with Rob Brown, the stuff I did with Evan Parker, with Sid Beer, um, with Darius Jones, is all completely improvisational. The, the Darius Jones might not sound like it, mm-hmm. but but they are completely improvisational, even though we we in the small gestures and tend to try to make something that sounds composed from that but um but that's actually been my at least in duos that's been my mode of working and and my favorite way to work with evo is is duo uh-huh. even though we do so many projects together mm-hmm. and uh yeah also the other guy that i remember you working with uh who sort of comes from the improv with a capital I world is John Butcher. Um, yeah, I'm working with Butcher a lot now. That's a very good relationship, and he's a genius at what he does. Um, he kind of has a, uh, an approach to the to the horn that nobody else has. I think like he's very yeah. he he's all about like the the room that he's playing in as much as the instrument and everything else. It's very. Uh, well, he's definitely uh, reacts to the environment. Yeah, I mean, he's always. Um, I, I I I've yet to be able to kind of formulate in verbally what his approach is, you know, because it's so unique. And I I mean I I kind I mean I know abstractly like I know how I characterize it without using words. I mean, I, there's a certain image that comes, but the, what he does is so unique. I, you know, I, I've yet to be able to really figure out how to put it into words mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and how does that change what you play um, well I, I'm, I'm I'm reactive so I doesn't I mean I'm, I don't need words I mean I, I deal with what's in front of me and um, that's how I mean what, what's in front of you is different than what's in front of you in a different situation so that's what changes things yeah. mm-hmm. but I find it very easy to play with him because he doesn't try to force an agenda on you he's definitely really I'm not you know I mean at times he has something he really wants to get across and he'll and he'll be forceful with that but at the same time you you never get it like he's never trying to force a trip on you and that's really rare I mean and especially the the exact balance he's found butcher's found with getting his thing across but never trying to force a trip on anybody else within the group and the way he, he the way he finds that balance and does it is, is a very rare thing. I mean, mm. he's a very special musician. Yeah, yeah, because I feel like a lot of saxophonists, in particular, are kind of like a plug-in, almost. You know what I mean? Like you bring in Pharaoh Sanders to your session, and at a certain point, you point at him, and he does the Pharaoh Sanders thing for five minutes or whatever. Right. Well, I mean, that's also a. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I'm not going to go there. I know what you mean, but I, that, that's also a product of just having been in the business for years, and you know, you have a certain name recognition, and you've been doing it forever, and you know, it just it comes down to that at a certain point. You know, that's that's 
But yeah, but I mean, he's not somebody like Pharaoh Sanders is not out here with um, a bunch of younger people trying to make something happen. You know, they, they <laughs> did that. They did that years ago. So, but I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it goes across the board. I mean, it's like I used to say that about Derek Bailey. Like they would say, you know, Derek Bailey is a pure improvising musician and he plays differently every time. And I'm like, then how come I can tell it's Derek Bailey in two seconds? Right. Well, you know? I mean, there's a fine line between um, playing cliches and then having a sound. I mean, you can tell some. I mean, I, I, I haven't listened to Derek Bailey enough. I don't know if, like, within the verbal structure of saying somebody's a pure improviser which is nonsense nobody that doesn't there's not it's not possible for the human brain to act outside of a matrix of some sort of um pre-established language and just like reach into the void and pull new fresh stuff out every time but you know that's a verbal convenience to say that about somebody you know and um I, I, it's, it, it's first of all it's impossible but but some people do kind of have a fresher approach to the instrument on a daily basis. I haven't listened to him enough to, to know if he has like licks or anything. But um, you know, he certainly attempted or tried to exemplify the idea of that. I just don't know if it's possible within yeah. the construct of how the human brain operates. Right. Right. Now, you, you've also, like you mentioned Darius Jones, who is kind of, in musical terms, of the generation behind you, sort of, and so is James Brandon Lewis. Like, like two or three generations behind <laughs> And so is James Brandon Lewis, who I know you, I, I think you know him or have, you know, hung out. Yeah, I was, I, I was a, he was um, in a class I taught at Atlantic Center of the Arts. I was a visiting um, artist. Oh, there okay. for a, a few, and I got to know him really well, and you know, I helped set up the first record he did. I put him together with William Parker and Gerald Cleaver for that. Oh, okay. I was wondering how that came together because it didn't seem like something that Sony would say, "Hey, why don't you use this rhythm section?" You know, right? <laughs> like if Sony, no, was he gonna... he put he he did he recorded that himself and then sold it to Sony. So okay, and yeah. I, I I was helping get get him to I introduced him to William and Gerald. Yeah. Yeah. Now, do you have any plans to work with him in the future? I mean, I'm not. You... No, I don't really think I should because he's really starting to create a career path on his own that's pretty strong. And I don't think I, I think at this point, you know, it's always good to have like some type of um, um, validation from some elders. But I don't think he needs it. I think, you know, it's. I don't want. I don't. I'm not making a comparison to Christian Scott, but you know, I, I think those guys have like people like that have a have a ability to connect to their own generation and develop an audience that way. And I, I think the old jazz paradigm way of doing things might not really be the what the doctor ordered in his situation because he 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 can communicate musically. I mean, he can just get up there and people are moved. And um, and that's true with Darius and James, both. I mean, I think they're both high-level communicators that um, have a connection to their instrument. They have a connection to modern, you know, the world today. And they, I, I don't, I don't think he, you know, I have worked with Darius, but I don't, and he, because he wanted to. I mean, that that was a product of him really wanting to do something with me. But I think in both cases, and 
um, they have an ability to get up in front of an audience and just move the audience. So I, I don't think they need like somebody patting them on the head. And James is getting out here in a lot of different ways now, and I, I think he just needs to keep doing what he's doing, and it's going to all work out. And I mean, even Sonny Rollins hurt him and really loved him. You know, yeah, I know that for a fact. You know, so he's definitely um, he's out. Yeah, you know, he's 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 you know, it's a really difficult thing. And I know those guys. I mean, I mean, I know them both well, and I know, you know, what they go through and and how difficult this business is. But they both have made an impact in um, which is hard to do these days with all the clutter and noise out here in the world. And they both really have something to say and they both um, you know I, I, I really I expect great things from both of them yeah yeah would you kind of welcome that sort of elder statesman role if it was like thrust upon you or how does you know is that just a weird um, no, I think William does it better <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> let's just put it that way I mean I, I, I'm just looking to but you know I'm 56, I'll be 57 in a couple of months. I just want to do some gigs, nice gigs, and, and kind of ride out in the sunset. And I'm not, I mean, I, 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 my, my thing I'm really into is my recorded legacy now. And I'm just, you know, have some nice gigs, treat it with some respect, and pay my credit cards. Man, I'm not, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm just not really looking to... Um, all that stuff that's connected to like the jazz experience, you know. I I, I really just want to play and and chill. <laughs> so you don't want to do like the uh, the artist in residence, you know, festival thing, stuff like that. Oh yeah, I would love that. Would be great to have a week at a festival, do all different bands every night, or you know, have a solo one night, a couple duos. And uh, yeah, I mean that's that I would love. Yeah. I wish the Montreal Jazz Festival would call me up for a whole week. You know, no, no, that's a product. That's out being out and playing. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that would be really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, you gave this lecture at the Stone about nothingness. I think it was, which is going to be included in your next album. So, it's, yeah, in a few, in a couple of the first pressings, not the all. Right, right. Right. So. Talk a little bit about that because I'm curious how it relates to the sort of Christian mysticism which has been an influence on your music in the past. Like this seems well, like that's a change what of I was, that's, No, no, that's what I was talking about. I mean, Christian mysticism at its base is the same as Zen. I mean, you're dealing with creation and you're dealing with, um, you know, creation out of nothing. Or so you had to deal with some type of void, or or and I guess the best way to look at that, I mean, if you're familiar with quote traditional Christian mysticism, is somebody like Jacob Bohem, the German mystic who um, dealt with creation coming out of I don't know, the German word is something like Ungrown, which is the abyss, and he deals with um the the abyss as a non you know basically a non-dimensional nothing I mean it's, it's but a dual, but dualities arise out of that singularity and um, basically because the singularity wants to get to know itself and as a singularity it can't know itself so it has to create dualities so it can see itself from different vantage points 
and then you know there's over a period of time you want to return to the um void or to the um matrix and and you know because you see everything out of that not as an illusion but as a finite structure and and so it's it's the same themes i mean the the christian mysticism at, at the bottom is the same themes as um as Eastern mysticism or anything like that, it's, it's being nothingness, void, things coming out of the void, and that's um, and and then the generation of space and time, out of some dimension that's beyond space and time. So, mm-hmm. you know, those themes are prevalent. Whether I mean, you know, the thing with Christianity is it, it, not, and I'm not talking about um, exoteric Christian or you know what goes on in churches, but as far as mystical Christianity, you know, the, the, the things are just done in a different symbology. Mm. And, and, um, but, um, it's, it's, it's at, at base, it's the same thing. I mean, when, when you listen to Bach, who was a, you know, Lutheran organist and, you know, I mean, that, that's high energy physics music, man. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. When I talked to uh, Roscoe Mitchell the other day, one of the things that he, because I was asking him, and this sort of ties into what you're saying, you know, in terms of the creation out of nothing aspect, uh, I was talking to him about how important silence is to AACM guys, particularly him and Wadada. And what he said was he said he's always considered silence to be 50% of music, and any note that you play has to be able to stand up against the purity of silence basically oh that's beautiful and i agree with him 100 percent. and i i and you know knowing i mean i played in roscoe's band for years um knowing roscoe and his music i i i know that's behind it you know i and that is um a beautiful way to put it and i second that emotion (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so how does uh, so how has your music changed over the years? Do you think you're a less busy player than you were in '93 oh, or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely becoming less and less busier, and I'm definitely um. There might be a point in a few years, where, I mean, if I could say what I'm like after, what I'm trying to go, I'm actually trying to find the phrase that, like, if I could put one phrase together on a piano that bring space time into it i mean i'm actually trying to find the like mystical phrase there's like two or three notes put together that encapsulates everything and if i could get it down to that that's what it would be you know mm-hmm. um but i'm i mean i've gone a few ways i'm definitely like trying to i, I want to go to the silence so if i could project what i want to project without any sound i would do that but, I mean, obviously, you know, uh, <laughs> you got to play some notes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or people don't want to come out to your concerts. But, but it's a, you know, I'm, but I'm, what I'm saying is about, you know, projecting what you're trying to project. And what I'm trying to project it has to do with some realm of silence. Um, so, in sculpting myself to that point, I'm getting less and less busier, more and more, um, uh, you know that's one thing that's going on. There's there was another aspect, and it's more in my trio. But I'm trying to moonlight as a, I guess, a regular jazz pianist, albeit in my own language. But 
with my trio, I'm sometimes trying to give the illusion that like we're the Baltimore trio or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, I, I and I think you know what I'm saying. I mean, in other words, the the presentation of the music, at least in the trio, is um one that could almost be construed as like fitting in a jazz club, but yet the language is something completely different. You know. So does that mean so, that like at a at a gig you're now like pausing between tunes because there are times uh, when you've played for like an hour straight that I see. no I don't stop I don't I can't I don't stop and talk because I don't I I don't consider myself like having that type of personality as an entertainer where I have anything to to say you know and I, I, it's still like this is the music take it or leave it and you know you play the hour and no, I'm definitely not trying to entertain anybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, actually, I played with my string trio once up at Maine, and a festival in Maine, and I was talking to the festival promoters, and there were a lot of older people there, so I was just asking them, you know, did they have any um, feedback from the like regulars that go to the festival? And he said, you know, it was like or like like ninety nine percent positive. And I said, well, what was it? He said one guy called up and was really complaining that I played the whole set and didn't. He, you know, he said, well, at least Charles Lloyd stopped between tunes and talked to the audience. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually said, yeah, you should give me that guy's email. I'll explain to him. And, you know, I'll tell him to go fuck himself. <laughs> I ain't going to sit there and tell stories between songs. You know, fuck that. It's just not me. Yeah, yeah. But um, but anyway, um, I, I think in my solo playing, I'm... I don't know what I'm going for, but I don't really need to know what I'm going for because um, it's um, taking on a life of its own and it's definitely growing. And by growing, I don't mean like more technique or anything. I mean, I do I do feel like I'm honing down to the very essence of what I want to say. And um, I don't know, we might get to a point one day where that is one note. Who knows? Mm-hmm. And does within the trio context does that does it help having Newman on drums because I don't feel like Wit would let you have that much sort of space you know he's not that kind of drummer right well yeah so. Newman has a a very um, great pedigree as far as um, he's played with Amal Jamal with McCoy Tyre with um, um, he's, he's played with um, Billy Harper you know I mean he's played with all the cats like that so there's definitely a, a degree of uh, I, I don't mean this in a, this doesn't sound good but I don't mean it in a bad way but there's a degree of jazz professionalism that he has inside of him even though that's not what he's about mm-hmm. and that definitely helps with what I'm going for with the trio yeah, at, yeah, this, point, it, at it, this point in my career yeah. it anchors you in, in a sense you know because I mean Wit is a drummer who pushes you know like I've right. seen, I've seen shows with the two of you where it was like you versus him, to a certain degree, right. you know. And I mean, I haven't yet seen the trio with Newman on drums, but the album that you guys did, you know, it's very much a, a sort of a swinging jazz piano trio in a sense. Right, right. So. Um, yeah, Wick comes more out of a post um, Sonny Murray type of school. It's a whole different thing, you know. Yeah. A whole different thing. Yeah, you've become a lot more politically outspoken this year than ever before. Like as long as I've known you, and right. 
while I totally agree with you, I'm curious if you want to talk about how you kind of snapped. Oh, snapped. Well, I mean, <laughs> DJ T, you know, other words, known as Donald John Trump is enough to make anybody snap. You know, this guy is a abomination. I mean, it's just not takeable. So, um, I was, I think I've just been, um, overwhelmed and outraged by the, um, a country that could put a buffoon like that in any position of power. That's enough to, that <laughs> should be, it should be enough to, to snap anybody into attention. It's like, you know, you don't think it could get that bad, you know, but it actually has. Yeah, yeah. And I guess part of me is curious because I've had these, you know, dark thoughts myself is, I mean, you're a well-known jazz musician. You're a guy who could make a living, you know, full-time in Europe probably if you wanted to. So, I mean, have thoughts of escape crossed your mind? No, because my father is, you know, 87, and, I, you know, I want to be around if he needs me. And um, this is where I grew up. And this is my country, or our country, not Donald Trump's country. So I'm not, you know, not giving it over to him. He's like, no, this is our place. You know, make it what we need it to be. And, and you know, the, what we need it to be is it for it to work for everybody. We don't, we're not, we are not on any trip like China. You know, I, I, you know, I want the best for everybody, even for the assholes that voted for him. You know, and <laughs> as long as they're, as long as they're not white nationalists, you know. Right. I mean, if, if anybody did vote for him out of economic grievance, you know, we want to see their lives improve too, you know, mm-hmm. so they don't have to go to this extreme, you know, to get a point across. But um, I, I'm not going anywhere. This is we were we were born here. This is our place, and we're going to make it work for us. All right. That's the end of my conversation with Matt Ship and this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you'll subscribe. Again, we're on iTunes and Stitcher, and I hope you'll come back for the next one. Thanks for listening.